Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to continue with uh, part two of uh, this this topic of um, are you too strict? And again, we were just to review the the major point. We were making a distinction between um, someone who is uh, cleaving to God, and this is the this is the positive model. This is the the the, the way to take this instinct and to to, to elevate it. Um, cleaving, of course, uh, we, we, we said that there's so many different paradigms in terms of understanding our relationship with God. So um, the classic ones being uh, king and subject or, 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 or father and, um, and child. Uh, there's even mother and child. There's, there's best friends, by the way. There's, there's, a, there's master and subject. There's all of these different paradigms. But the one that the Talmud calls, Rabbi Akiva calls, the Holy of Holies is Shira Shirim, which is of two lovers. And this is the idea that you understand that you're immersed in godliness and you're cleaving to God and that all of your day's um, uh, activities, all of your conversations, all of your interactions with people are different um, aspects of an ongoing conversation that you're having with God. And so you, you see godliness in, in, in each one of your circumstances and you try to attach yourself to that situation to, to, to milk out from that situation the, the, the best way to, 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 to cleave to God, to, to serve God. And, and when you're in that type of love relationship, when you're lovesick, as the, as the Rambam says, then, then you want to do more and more. You want to do more and more. That's the positive model. Now, the negative model is when there's a voice inside your head which is basically hitting you and yelling at you and telling you that you're not doing enough, that you're not good enough, that um, everything is wrong and everything is for nothing and things like that. And then you better do more. And this is, a, this is the voice of strictness that a person thinks is coming from the good side. And so this is where a person really has to be very wise in terms of deciphering the voices in their heads. Now, I want to tell you a thought that, that came to me that is, I think, a big thought. So, so please, uh, please think about this. It says, by the Akeda. So the Akeda, of course, that's the binding of Isaac when, when, when Abraham is, is told to take his son that he, that he has when he's 100 years old, Yitzchak. And Sarah's 90 years old, this total miracle baby. And to put this baby on the altar, God never says to kill the baby or to sacrifice the baby, but to put the baby on the altar. And God understands that that will be understood by Abraham as sacrificing the baby. But, but just, it's a... It's a bit of a fine point, but it's important to know that God didn't say, sacrifice Isaac and then change his mind. Because that creates all sorts of theological problems. And that's, that, in fact, is not the case. But, but the nature of the test was that God made it in Abraham's head that Abraham thought that it was the case. So just, it's a, it's a bit of a distinction, but, but one to always keep in mind. Anyway, so, so this is, I think, arguably the most difficult thing that any individual, any human being, has ever been asked, ever, what Abraham was asked here. And the more you learn about this, 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 this trial, this account, the more amazing it gets. It gets more and more amazing the more that you learn about it. How Abraham was somehow able to, able to overcome this test is, is, is phenomenal. It's, it's actually phenomenal. Now, and we're still, to this day, the spiritual recipients of the, of the spiritual breakthrough that he made. To this day, you and I and all of us are still drawing benefit and light from what he did. Just to give you a, a, just a way of just kind of trying to gauge the, the, the parameters of how enormous it was, the breakthrough. Anyway, here's the point. This incredibly difficult thing, when Hashem asks him, if you look in the language of the Torah, God says, kach na which means please take in other words here god is asking avraham avinu 
to basically do the hardest thing ever, like the impossible, basically. And look at the language of God. God uses the word please. Please take. Now, you better do this. You want to be the father of a nation of people, of nations of people? You know, get your act together. This is what I want right now. Like, you can imagine, like, what do you imagine the voice of God sounded like at that moment? And it was, kachna, please take. Now, I derive something very, very important from this, which is that in terms of trying to decipher and to catalog the voices in your own head, right? Because we all have voices in our head. I'm not talking about schizophrenia right now or or, or, or um, emotional disorders. I'm just talking about normal life. We have different voices in our heads and we, we hear different impulses. If that impulse for you to do good is coming from a place of anger and yelling, then you know for sure it's not from God. Because if God at the most difficult moment that he's ever asked anyone ever to do anything, right? says, please take, uses the language of please, then you know, even if you're being asked something very, very hard, if it's really from God, it's going to come from a place of, of that type of, that type of, that, that, that level of energy. And so, and so now we can get something a little bit deeper. By the way, just before we go to the next point, which builds on this point. It's possible to be angry at yourself and that it will be you yourself yelling at yourself, but that's a whole other topic. In other words, how best to motivate yourself. And in general, you should know that you can catch, right? What do they say? More, more bees with, with honey than vinegar, something like this, or more flies, whatever it is. The, the idea being that you, you'll get more out of other people and you'll get more out of yourself if you try to positively motivate yourself than try to tear yourself down and try to do it that way. So you also have to know psychologically how to deal with your own self. It's like, for instance, I think that sometimes, and again, a person has to be very wise and very disciplined in how they apply what I'm about to say, but sometimes it seems to me that if a person is on a diet, for instance, that the best thing that they can do if they're like really like at the end is to eat a cookie as opposed to not eating a cookie. Meaning to say that sometimes a person can get to the place where they'll, they'll get so depressed, essentially, that they'll give the entire thing up. And so the actual result of them not giving in a little bit and giving themselves a little flexibility will be a whole binge session as opposed to letting off a little bit of steam and allowing themselves to do like a little bit of what they're trying to escape from, right? But that's only in the service of getting more out of themselves. Do you understand? So again, a person has to be very wise with this because sometimes you can fool yourself and just, you know just open up the, the gates and then you, you, you aren't prepared to like someone, for instance, who is an addict and really an addict shouldn't apply what I just said. Their answer is no, never. <laughs> Always no, never. That's the only formulation. And it's not, yeah, maybe just one fifth of scotch this morning, <laughs> you know, just to, get in, just to get to the afternoon, you know, no. That, that, that is, would not be what I'm talking about. So again, it's, it's all these very fine distinctions. And, and there's, the problem is, is that when you get to these levels of fine distinctions, there's so much gray area. And that's where the Yetzirah, like loves to set up shop in the gray areas, you know? So, but, but anyway. So it's a little bit tricky, but this is the wisdom of life. This is why you have to have good friends and good teachers and people who you can... Talk to and, and ask for advice to know how and when to apply these things. Um, but anyway, getting back to this idea. So what I'm telling you is that by the, by the Akedah, by the binding of Isaac, 
Hashem used this language, kachna, please take. And so now, now I want to develop this further to the, to the next step, which is, which is something that, that I remember when I first learned it, I was, I was surprised to learn it, and I was very happy to learn it. And that's the following, which is that the Yetzirah, we're so, we're so um, used to the Yetzirah coming to us in the form of the, the tempter. And of course, the, you know, the classic sort of like cartoon and Hollywood presentation that there's an angel on one soldier, sold, uh, shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. Like, like this is actually, you know, not such a bad representation of the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination and the evil inclination. So we do have this more or less. Um, and, and we're used to good advice coming from the angelic presence and, and negative advice. Um, or, you know, more sort of like uh, lustful advice, whatever category that would fall into, from the, from the demonic presence or the, you know, the, the devil, whatever it is. Okay. But what I'm coming to tell you here is that oftentimes the, the, the Yetzirah will disguise itself as the angel. And that it will give you advice to go further along a spiritual path at a time that you haven't quite developed the life foundation for in order to um, do. And there's a, in other words, so, so, so you see this in the prayers. Um, I think it's in more than one place, but I know that it's in Mariv. When we say the paragraph before Shmona Esrei, uh, Hashkivenu, um, it says, shield us, remove us, um, from remove from us foe, plague, sword, famine, and woe, and remove, here's the key part, spiritual impediment. It's funny, it's translated as spiritual impediment. They, 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 they want to make it uh, sort of like uh, nice in English, but you know what spiritual impediment is in the Hebrew? Uh, Satan. <laughs> you know, the Hebrew doesn't mince words. Um, so, so it says, remove from us the Satan, spiritual impediment, from before us and from behind us. So I heard in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe that this is the idea of the Yetzirah in its two guises. When it's behind us, when it's trying to strike us from behind, then it's in its... Um, sort of uh, most naked uh, uh, form, meaning to say that it's trying to get us to do something wrong. But when it stands before us, sometimes the spiritual impediment will stand before us, and that, it's, it's garbing itself as that which wants to lead us, seemingly to a good place. That's when it's disguised as, as a rabbi, so to speak. Right? So what's an example of this, so you understand what I'm saying? So let's say a person isn't ready to keep a certain mitzvah. All right? And one thing that everyone has to understand, and we're going to get into this hopefully next, which is the whole subject of black and white. Meaning, I'm either doing it or I'm not doing it. And there's nothing in between. Because this is one of the, all or nothing, this is one of the most uh, common manifestations of the Yetzirah. And one of the ones that, that gets us almost all the time and it plays on our sincerity. So that's why it's, it's, it's particularly uh, uh, toxic. But anyway, so, so an example would be, let's say I am not, like I'll give you an example from my own life, okay? Um, so there's a mitzvah, which is to, when you're reviewing the Parsha, to go through the Parsha twice in Hebrew and once in Aramaic. All right, or twice in Hebrew and maybe with the Rashis. All right, that is another way to fulfill it. So I remember I was really dedicated to going over the Parsha every single week. And then I hadn't, you know, because I didn't know anything. Um, and I, I didn't know that that was the formal technical way to review the Parsha. And so, and my Hebrew to this day is not great. And, and 
it certainly wasn't great when it, you know, years and years ago when I learned this. And I remember I tried to do it. I was learning in, in Jerusalem a little bit. I came back. And that week's Parsha was the longest Parsha in the entire Torah, of course, right? And I was trying to go through the entire Parsha in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And you know what? I dropped the Parsha for years and years and years and years and years because of that. I mean, I would look in, but but I wasn't doing it nearly at the level that I was doing it before I found out the quote-unquote official way to do it. Because I didn't have the vessels. I didn't have the vessels. And I was trying to do this entire, the entire official presentation. And it just, it short-circuited my, my brain. It just blew me out. And then it made me sad and depressed that I wasn't able to do it. And then you go into a cycle of avoidance, right? Because it's like, I can't do it. It's like, you know, I owe this guy money. Now I, I, I can't pay him back. You know, you know he's, he's gone from being the best friend who lent me money. Now I'm avoiding him and I can't even look at him. What? This is a guy who loves you and who did something beautiful for you. And now, like, how did you allow the relationship to, to, to devolve into that? Right? So this is, this is one of the tools of the Eight Sahara. And this is when it's dressing up like a rabbi because it comes to you with this fabulous mitzvah and you think, well, mitzvah, it's like a tautology. A equals A. That's, a, that's called a tautology. So mitzvah equals good. So if someone is telling me, do this mitzvah, it must be coming from a good place. But what if it's coming and it's presenting itself in a way that I'm not prepared to, to execute it at that point and I feel all of a sudden very much weighed down by it. So this is an example um, of when the Yetzirah comes dressed and disguised as, as the angelic presence, as, as a rabbi, so to speak. So we have to be very, very careful. And that's why if you want to take on something, you have to talk to someone. You, you know, someone who has experience. Say, I want to take on this mitzvah. What, what should I do? Am I ready to take on this mitzvah yet? And then let them ask you questions about your level. You know, I remember I took a walk with Reb Shlomo Karlbach one time when I was um, uh, 15. And I was asking him about keeping Shabbos. And I remember, you know, he, he was asking me questions. He said, do you put on tefillin in the morning? He didn't just say yes. He wanted to know, like, where, what, what level am I at right now? What, what is my foundation at this point before I start embarking on something that at that point in my life would have been a whole quantum level of extraness that I didn't have the background or, or, or support system at that point. And he wanted to know. And that's, that's proper. We have to learn from that with our own lives and our own selves. And so, so one of the things that we have to understand is that spiritually speaking, there's 613 mitzvot, and each mitzvah contains all the other mitzvahs. So there's, a, there's an amazing kind of, there are microcosms within microcosms and everything like this. But, but the point I want to make is that there are levels within each mitzvah, Okay. So, so, so the Yetzirah, the, the sort of the evil inclination, comes to us and says, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. And they rule out from the outset the idea of breaking down a mitzvah into parts. And it's, that, that's very bad, because for, for, for people, breaking down a mitzvah into parts is, is, is salvation. This is, the, is, this is the best thing that you can do, oftentimes. So I heard a, a, uh, an example, a mushal, from the, uh, from the Alter Rebbe of Lubavitch, a, a beautiful idea. I always go back to it because of its, just its utter simplicity and truth, which is um, 
If you have a very thick log, imagine a very thick log, like, I don't know, like a, a foot across, you know, in terms of width. And imagine you have a, a, one match. Can you light this log with one match? It's impossible. It won't happen. It will not happen. If you cut down this log into many, many, many small pieces, right? Then, even with a match, you, you can light it. And so that's, that's the idea, that, that spiritually speaking, you, mitzvahs can be broken down into parts. So, so maybe um, in terms of keeping Shabbos, maybe I'm not using the phone Friday night. Okay? So that, that would be something that's, that's worthwhile. Or maybe Shabbos day, I'm going to try to do my shopping or whatever it is beforehand. Or maybe I'm going to push it off to Sunday. And then you make different beachheads within Shabbos, whatever it is. That, that would be one example. Uh, if someone is, is, is trying to um, elevate the nature of their speech, maybe they'll say, you know something, if I'm, if I'm on the phone, I'm speaking Lashon Hara. I'm gossiping. That's what it is. I know myself. If I'm on the phone, that's what I'm doing. So you know what? I'm going to try not to be on the phone for, you know, this hour a day or this 15 minutes a day, whatever it is. And then you, you start with something and then hopefully strength leads to strength and you expand. Now let me just get into the spiritual psychology of this. Uh, go a little bit deeper, okay? This idea of all or nothing. Now, imagine a lot of people feel like I'm either doing it or I'm not doing it. And there really is nothing in between. And you're you're, you're kidding me if, if you're saying there is something in between. This is the, this is the, 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 the argument the Yetzirah makes to us. So let me just tell you the silliness of it, if you think about it. Imagine you're walking down the street and, you know, Rahman al-Itzlan, we should, shouldn't see such things. God should feed all the hungry. But imagine there's someone starving on the street and he's lying on the sidewalk. And you look at this poor person and you say to yourself, you know, this person really deserves a good meal. Like a really good meal. Like, 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 a, like a restaurant meal. You know, he's so hungry. And when's the last time he tasted like decent food? And you think, you know what, I would like to take him for a steak dinner. And then you say, well, but you know what that would cost? That would cost a lot of money. I have maybe a dollar in my pocket. A dollar can't pay for a steak dinner. So you walk around him and you keep on walking. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guy could be starving to death. And with that dollar could buy a candy bar that could keep him going for who knows how much longer. Right? But you say, you know, so this idea of all or nothing, it doesn't make any sense. Imagine a doctor prescribes some medicine for you. And there's five different medicines. Five independent medicines. And you go, okay, if I take these five medicines, I'm going to get healthy. But I can only afford three, so I'm not going to take any. <laughs> Does it make sense? Does it make any sense? No. But the Sahara, in its brilliance, remember, again, the Sahara is an angel. That's the thing that we have to keep on remembering. And an angel doesn't get tired. And an angel knows us better than we know ourselves. It's a, it's a spiritual entity. So this is, this is important to keep in mind who we're up against. It says in the Talmud that no person can defeat the Yetzirah unless God gives you extra help. So in other words, everyone is outmatched from the outset. You are automatically outmatched. So you have to have humility. A person has to understand from the outset, this is stronger than I am. And only by reaching out to God can you begin to make any progress with it. So, so that, that requires an act of humility. You know, 
you know, because um, if a person's um, sort of initial stances is that, well, what are challenges I can do with the challenges and everything like that, then that's a recipe for disaster. But I, I want to make the point stronger. The point is like this. Really, for the most part, and I'm talking about spiritual seekers right now, the only reason why you want to do any of this is because you want the truth. And you want to be good. You want to be good. And you want to, you, you want to give God happiness. That's at the root of, of every one of these desires that I'm talking about in the positive way. And so, so, so you want to do the whole thing. And then when the Yetzirah comes to you and says, you who wants to do the whole thing is not doing the whole thing. Therefore, if you're only doing part of it, you're a liar. You're a hypocrite. And then the last thing that you want to be is a liar or a hypocrite or insincere or untruthful. And so now you say, in the name of being truthful, I'm not, only, I'm not going to do part of it. <laughs> I'm not going to do any of it. <laughs> because that's how truthful I am. That's how sincere I am. And this is the, this is the ultimate judo flip where it takes your goodness and your sincerity and turns it against you. In the name of being truthful, in the name of being honest, in the name of being sincere, to only do part of it, you're right. I'm not going to do part of it. And therefore, since I don't have the wherewithal to do all of it, I'm going to do none of it. In the name of truth. I mean, the logic is so clear and so simultaneously alarming. But this is the Yetzirah. This is why Mashiach hasn't come yet. This is why we're not there yet. Because it's so good. <laughs> it's so good at what it does. It makes so much sense while it's going on. And yet we're like doing... What I, I thought I was walking this way. How did I get 10 miles in the opposite direction? And not even realize it. How did that happen in my life? How did that happen? See, it's Ara. That's, that's why it's still got its job. It would have been fired a long time ago if it wasn't as good as it is. But always keep in mind, always keep in mind, the Yetzirah works for God. It is, and, and when the Yetzirah comes to a person, it's another enormous teaching. It wants you to say no to it. It wants you to say no to it. Meaning to say, if you say yes to it, the teaching is it rips its clothes and cries. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. Because there aren't two powers. It's not God and, it's not good and evil. There is good and evil, but all of that is part of the oneness of God. God is just sending us tests in order to, to, to basically bring out the godliness inside of us out into the world, which lifts up the entire world. This is the, the agency of the Geula. This way the entire world is getting deeper and deeper and more and more beautiful because we're overcoming obstacles. And this is, this is the way that God saw fit to conduct creation and the road toward the perfection of the world. So all of this ultimately is a tool that God is, is using to, to improve us and to give us more reward and to make the world a beautiful place. But it's, it's a very complicated process. And we will only see the clarity of this Really, when the redemption comes and we look back, and then we'll see really the absolute clarity of this process. But anyway, meanwhile, we have to know how to deal with our own Yetzirahs. Now, I'll tell you another thing. And the Talmud says that there's seven names to the Yetzirah, and that the seventh name is the most insidious. This is the worst, okay? And it's called Safon. And that means hidden. And this is really devastating. And I learned this from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro Shlita. He said that, that when the Yetzirah comes in its hidden way, what it does is it uses the word I. 
So, so you know, you, you have something called the bait and switch. You know, that's like a famous kind of like a con man term where you think you're getting one thing and then all of a sudden you're getting the other thing. So when the Yetzirah comes with the word I, all of a sudden you hear a voice in your head that says, I want so-and-so. So you think that's you speaking. You think, oh, that's interesting. I never really even considered that. I, I do. I want so-and-so. Now that initial voice wasn't from you. But it's like spiritual identity theft. It, it presents itself as you speaking to yourself. And it introduces this, this destructive idea, probably in a very appealing way, right? In a very seductive way. Presents this idea, I want so-and-so. And now here comes the bait and switch. You hear, quote-unquote, yourself talking... <laughs> And now all of a sudden you enter into the conversation and you say, hmm, that I, well, I never considered that. Do I want, yeah, well, I guess that has its appeal, you know. People seem to like that, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you're in that place. And then it just depends on to what extent you want to uh, further the process. You know, and the, the, um, this spiritual identity theft can go on for a period of time. In other words, that voice, I want, I want, I, whatever it is, it's not just like they plant a seed and then run away. It can go on for a while. You know, so till you're convinced that it's you who's talking and you're convinced that this is what you want. You see, so this is very, very interesting. So you can ask yourself, do I want that? Do I want that? But then that also gets tricky also. See, there are all these different strategies and everything is, everything is nuanced. So this really, all of these different things that I'm talking to you about take years and years of uh, work on yourself in terms of really getting to know yourself. It, it, this is not, this is, this, this, these are not small things that we're talking about right now. We're talking about a, a whole life a whole life's work and a whole life's process, okay? Um, the reason is because there are certain times where it's going to be obvious to you as you get to know yourself better and as you sort of um, identify your own spiritual uh, positive and negative impulses better, right? When that voice is coming from the Yetzirah, you know, you just know, Right? If basically you keep kosher, let's say you keep kosher, and you've been keeping kosher for years, say, and then all of a sudden you um, go by a McDonald's, and you go, hey, look, a big sign, the McRib is back. (laughs) Apparently, among McDonald's aficionados, this is like a big event, like they take away the McRib sandwich, and then they bring it back, and it's like a big holiday, you know, so it's, anyway, just judging by the signs, I'm a... Gauge that. So anyway, you're like, you know, who am I not to honor the McRib's return? You know, so it's like, you know, you want to walk in now. Now you know that that's coming from the Eight Sahara. There's no question. It's it's obvious that that's coming from the Eight Sahara. So, 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 so anyway, now you can at that point when 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 it's when it's naked, so to speak. It's it's. Uh, how it's coming to you, that it's just what it is, it's just negativity, then you don't engage it. And the example that they give, again, utterly simplistic example, but very, very deep and very, very true, is they compare the Yetzirah coming to a person as like you're walking down the street and on the other side of the street you see someone and he waves to you. And now it's up to you whether you want to wave back. (laughs) And if you wave back, then he sort of crosses the street towards you and says hello. And then you can say hello back. And then next thing you know, you're in a conversation. And then who knows? Then the next thing you know, you're in the trunk of his car. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you don't, you, you, you engage at your own risk. You engage at your own risk. 
and 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 in when it's when it's clear to you the less you allow yourself to explore the idea the better off you are you know i i was just reading you know this famous book i just kind of was flipping through it uh uh what is it men are from uh, women are from venus men are from mars so they're talking about different um how how the genders speak to each other and how oftentimes there's a breakdown in communication. I, I have a story from my own life on that, which, um, you know, is uh, with my father and my mother, uh, which was a story my father told me, and a very hurtful, he, hurtful story about my mother, meaning how he would hurt her feelings on a regular basis without realizing it. And the, the story goes like this. My mother would say to my father, would you like to go to the movies? Now, my father thought she was asking him a question. So my father would say, no. But my mother was asking him to go to the movies. Not if he wants to go to the movies. She's not curious. Oh, are you, you know, like, just like doing a survey. Would you like to go to the moon? Would you like to go to Australia? You know, like, she's not doing some catalog on him. She... She is inviting him to the movies. But he heard it as a question. So he would say, it is a question, exactly. So he did, he did absolutely nothing wrong. He heard a question, would you like to go to the movies? No. But meanwhile, she felt rejected because she was asking him to do something with her. And he was telling her in her ear, in her mind, I don't want to do something with you. And he had no idea what the nature of that conversation is. Now that tells me to a certain extent we're all doomed. <laughs> because if you, if you ask me, my father is 100% innocent. And if you ask me also, I 100% understand my mother's hurt. So here you have two people, neither of whom did anything wrong, and yet somehow there's hurt between them. And now imagine, you know, um, gender things being gender things. Now imagine my father asks my mother something, and my mother goes, like, no. Like, why should I do anything for you? And my father, meanwhile, is like, lost. Like, what did I do? Now you're mad at me, what did I do? And in his mind, he didn't do anything. So now he's now there's this tension between the two of them that will lead to who knows what, an argument over something that has nothing to do with anything, right? And now all of a sudden they're fighting. Well, I don't know that I'm just extrapolating. I, I don't know that this, these parts happen, but it's it's what I'm saying is not so far fetched. So now all of a sudden they're having a fight about something over what? Why? You see, one of the tragedies. I think, of the human condition is that we think that we're communicating with each other and we rarely are. We rarely are. I think rarely does another person actually understand what we're saying. Rarely. And it's, it's pretty heartbreaking, actually. You know? So, you know, it's good if you find someone who, you know, that's why it says in Perkei Abos, you know, a selach rav, you have to take upon yourself a rav. And also it says, and buy a friend. That's the next line, buy a friend. That a friend is so important to have. Who's a friend? A friend, by the way I'm explaining it right now, would be someone who actually more or less understands you. <laughs> more or less understands you. If you can find a person like that, take them out for lunch. Buy them a present. Hold on to them. Don't let them go. You know, like someone like this, buy a friend. Like that's someone who it's actually a commodity to keep in your life. It's worth it. It's worth it. You know? So, um, so now I want to go a little bit deeper. This idea of black and white, right? Because we're talking about strictness. So you say to yourself, um, well, look, 
you know, it's very nice what you're saying, so you do part of the mitzvah if you can't do the whole mitzvah. But, you know, this is all introductory level stuff. And, um, you know, that, that, that's nice for someone else, but not for me. Because I really believe that there's right and wrong, and it's either true or it's not true. And, you know, maybe you're trying to cheer me up and make me feel better. I'm doing part of the mitzvah, whatever it is. But it's not for real. If I'm not doing the whole thing, I'm not doing it. Let's, let's be honest with each other. Okay, so there are people who feel that way too. And so that's a more advanced um, that's a more advanced position that some people have. I'm not saying that's right, by the way. I don't think it's right. But there are some people who feel very empowered by that manner of thinking. And so I want to speak to that point of view now. So the reality is, is that there's something to that, that argument, but it's actually deeper than what they're saying. Okay? And I want to address it in the following way. There is a black and white to the world. There actually is. There actually is. But there are two primary, I would say, constructs in the world. The first is the universe itself, and the second is the human being who inhabits the universe, who the universe was created for. Okay? So again, two primary constructs in the world. The universe itself and the human being who inhabits the universe, who the universe was created for. So that would be the primary entity. Okay? So in terms of the universe itself, it really is black and white. It actually really is black and white. Now, what do I mean, what do I mean by that? So, I think it's very helpful to understand that we live in a very structured environment, especially since <clears throat> it's become very fashionable over the years to um, use phrases like, that's so random, and to, to imagine that everything is random, right? And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first, I want to lay out the fact that the universe itself is really almost, it's so precisely orchestrated that it's the opposite of random, really. And, and so let's just take a quick tour from, from the biggest things to the smallest things. So, so you have the cosmos. And the cosmos, now I just saw something um, uh, about a week ago that I'm happy excited to share with you. I read this, uh, this, this just came out, okay? I read on my, my favorite uh, news source, the new Google news page. Um, and uh, that's nice if you, if you want to see a nice sort of survey of what's going on in the world. And I only check that about 10 times a day. So, um, so this science story uh, was reported, and they said that, you know, Earth... Uh, inhabits the, uh, an area of the cosmos of, called the Milky Way. Now, the Milky Way is a very, very small part of the cosmos. Very, very small part, okay? Now, they counted the number of planets or heavenly bodies, whatever it is, in the Milky Way, okay? And they came to the, the number of about 14 million um, in the, in the Milky Way itself. So, so what does that mean? And here, here's, here's what I loved, that they, that they put it this way. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say million? Billion, billion. So that means for every single person in this world, in just the Milky Way, which is the tiniest piece of the cosmos, for every single individual, just think of yourself for a moment, there are two entire planets for you. <laughs> two planets. And, and, and the Earth is considered a small planet. So for you, there are two planets bigger than the Earth. Can you imagine? And that's the tiniest part of the cosmos. The tiniest part of the cosmos. 
So there, I mean, to fathom the trillions of heavenly bodies that are out there. And so I always ask myself the question, why don't they all slam into each other? And then it, it, I, I mentioned this the other day, and someone said, they do. And I said, no, I'm talking about all of them slamming into each other. Why don't they all slam into each other? Especially since it's almost like God is showing off. Actually, that's not one of his qualities, but so God forbid. But he even puts black holes, which are giant vacuum cleaners, right? You know, in the middle of all this, sucking in planets. And yet somehow, all of the planets, as though this wouldn't be enough of a feat to have all of these giant things, galaxies themselves, with, with enormous gravitational pulls, not affecting and throwing off the orbit of all of the other ones that absolutely, exquisitely, exactly adhere to their orbital patterns. How could it be? How could it be? That level of exactness, with that magnitude of players, how could it be? And then you go down further, you get to air. Air is precisely this amount of oxygen and exactly this amount of nitrogen. And if you flip them, say, okay, so make it that amount of nitrogen and that amount of oxygen, the entire earth would suffocate in a minute. Would suffocate. Would, everyone would fall down dead. The entire planet would be dead in a minute. So the, 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 the quantities, of the, the recipe, if you will, for air, exact, exact. Then you go in the human body to DNA. So you say, okay, so X chromosomes, Y chromosomes, so take a few more Y chromosomes. You'd be walking around with nine heads. It's exact, 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 exact. Then you go down to subatomic particles, the path of the electron. Exact. If there's one more neutron or one more proton, it's a different thing altogether. It's not carbon anymore at that point. It's nitrogen or it's whatever it is, Einsteinium, my favorite of the elements, you know. So it's like it's, it's completely different. You see the level of precision from, from the largest structures to the most minute structures. So how can anyone say that the world is random? How can anyone with a straight face, with any intellectual honesty, say that the world is random? There's nothing random going on. So I'll tell you why they say it. Because interpersonal relationships are random. Not random. Mysterious. This is a much better word. Mysterious. Why did you say that? Why didn't you say that? Why did you do that? Why didn't you do that? I don't know. And so I feel like I know nothing. And so I project my own lack of knowledge, my own sense of life being random around me onto the universe. But that's a completely inappropriate projection. It's completely inappropriate. Interpersonally, I don't know, but the universe itself? Very exact. So now let's go back to the point. What about this idea of black and white? Maybe you can say, look, you either did it or you didn't do it. You did the mitzvah or you didn't do the mitzvah. Like, let's be strict. Let's be honest. You know, let's be honest accountants. You did it or you didn't do it. So you're telling me that, you know, you know you're keeping Shabbos, but you did this and you did that. You're not keeping Shabbos. Well, you know something? The universe is exact. But you know what? God isn't judging the universe. God is looking at us. And the human being is a different construct. I told you, there are two main components to existence. There's the universe itself, and there's the individual. And they're different. And the universe was created for the sake of the individual. Okay? Now, by the individual, it says, God searches the heart. And God knows what you're trying to do, and God knows the obstacles that are up against you, 
And just like God is exact, if you want to be like, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Strict, just like God knows that, that there's this stuff that you perhaps haven't done yet, there's also all this stuff that you are doing. Because you think God only judges the negative side? No. God knows all the positive efforts that we're also making because God searches the heart. And God also knows all the obstacles that are against us. And God knows all the times that we failed and still stood back up and how much strength that took and how much courage that took to stand back up and to rededicate ourselves. God knows that. God knows how hard we're trying. And God counts every single one of those efforts as infinitely precious. Infinitely precious. So anyone who says you either did it or you didn't do it, they don't know what they're talking about. They literally don't know what they're talking about. You can apply that standard of, of, of exactitude on the universe, but you can't apply it to the individual. And the whole universe was made for the individual. Where God searches the heart. That's from Tehillim. That's David HaMelech. That's not, that's, this is our religion. This is what we believe. This is what we say is true and real. So even if you want to be from, you know, the more sort of advanced thinkers and say, well, I'm talking really the ultimate sense. It's either true or it's not true. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. For planets, it's true. <laughs> for atoms, it's true. For me, God has a different way of looking at it. God has a different way of looking at it. Just wants us to try. That's all. Just wants us to try. And to not give up. To try and to not give up. Okay, I'm going to stop there.